chain and the idea is to ground our discussion in uh, to say precisely what it is we're talking about so is it first of all is it uh, a determinate sort of reality uh, is it an emotion is it a physiological response does it concern simply our relationship with other people uh, is it to state it philosophically is it an ontological reality uh, or is it simply you know something less than that um, and maybe even to say is it just an emotion is to raise another question and that is well can we talk about our emotions and talk about that as if it's a separate reality from our being. Um, and so to answer, to, to ground the discussion, I just want to do a little bit of introduction uh, as to what a what is a human being, what is uh, Christian anthropology, which is already to say, what is, when we talk about the image and likeness of God, I'm not, I'm presuming image and likeness are not two separate things, Historically, I understand Irenaeus, John Toddy is doing a whole paper on Irenaeus, who distinguishes between image and likeness, but uh, for the moment, I'm going to say they're the, that they're just synonyms. Uh, but what is, you know, the, what is the prime reality about us, and then how does shame touch upon uh, that prime reality if it does? And what I will say I, is that shame does, in fact, touch upon the reality of who we are because who we are is relational. That is, we're going to understand uh, that the image bearing is, we've already talked about, it's through a plurality of persons uh, that uh, man has created male and female, so already we bear the image not as an absolute individual or as a singular, you know, uh, a person. But my understanding is that Adam and Eve were incomplete in their image bearing. It was only after that both of them uh, were created that God said it's good, it's complete. That, And so what that indicates is that if it's the plurality of persons that our image is not removed from our embodiment or our genderedness. That is that uh, what if we're going to describe the way in which we are in the image of God, we should not in any way leave out the fact that we're male and female, that we're embodied. Um, so uh, and in this, I don't, we don't need to do much with this, but I think I've already said enough that what we're getting at is, is that this image bearing that we have is not something that we, in some way, isn't simply something we retain within ourselves, but already we've said it's a plurality of persons, it's embodied, and that means that it's uh, something that not only do we share with other people, but we share with God, and that's the idea there. To bear the image of God, it's also the idea that the original couple understand who they are in and through the eyes of God. Uh, they're children of God, and that's part of the image. Uh, so the image is one in which uh, God recognizes himself in us, and we recognize 
uh, who God is in and through our relationship with one another. And that's inclusive of our relationship to God. And the fact, you know, we can project ahead that the fact that this gendered image is fulfilled in Christ and the church, the wedding feast of the Lamb, we're not talking about a second order reality. We're talking about something primary. So when shame occurs in Genesis, what is happening is this is the picture of the failure of a relationship. I don't even know what to call shame yet, uh, but it's certainly uh, the experience then of of a failed relationship. And don't think here of relationship in some secondary, secondary way, because if you fail in your relationship to God, you failed to have the image. That is, that shame is what it's like to die. Uh, shame is what it's like to be undone. And because we've said already that it's connected to, that our image bearing is physiological, it's certainly physiological. Uh, that it's inclusive, it's, it's something that happened, this is the way we feel shame, you know. Um, that, uh, that we feel it in our embodiment. So what I'd say shame is a physiological, spiritual experience. Those things are not posed against one another. It's a physiological, spiritual experience that touches on the reality of who we are uh, in God. And you're not going to be able interesting in modern day psychology and psychoanalysis, a lot of discussion about shame. But the Definition I just gave you, obviously you're not going to get in a secular understanding. And so they're going to talk about shame as, you know, oh, that, you know, they're, they're going to talk about it as the root negative mo- emotion, as the unendurable emotion. And secular psychology is very interesting at this point because it is recognizing or coming to recognize that shame, in fact, is a central uh, you know, mental, uh, emotional problem. And in theology, that is not a well-recognized understanding. Because what, again, I, I don't need to go into it today, but you already know that what we're all caught up in is guilt. And so the whole focus of atonement, the focus of... And, and there's no inherent, you know, reason for that other than cultural uh, there's nothing scriptural in that we focused on guilt. It's just that, that we've fallen into that because there has been a failure to recognize the centrality of shame. But just go back, and you, know, you don't have to think very long. Think of the experience of Adam and Eve. Think of the experience of Christ. Uh, is that primarily, you know, what's happening there? Well, a lot of shame in both instances, and explicitly so in the description in both instances uh, in Scripture. Uh, so let's. We need to clear up, and I'll just say it quickly, not dwell on it. Let's get rid of any notion that there is a distinction between physical and spiritual, or physical and spiritual death. Uh, they are on a continuum. So that when it says uh, that the day that you eat of it, you'll die, they did. They the process kicked in. And their shame, uh, there's no central Hebrew word. There's about 14 words in the Hebrew. 
But we don't have to have we don't have to resort to any particular vocabulary here, because we can just look at the experience. They're hiding. They're so, uh, you know, this is more than embarrassment. This is running and hiding, uh, sort of thing. That uh, clearly uh, the the picture is that man is subject to death, and the way that he experiences death is through shame. Now, you won't experience your own death, right? You won't be at your own funeral. But do you know what it feels like to die? I think you do in the experience of shame. So, uh, think here then just in in large terms. What is the the salvation in Christianity? It's resurrection. Uh, And resurrection is pictured as being clothed in Christ. What is that the resolution to? It's the resolution to death and being unclothed. That is a picture of shame and its resolution because shame is equated with nakedness. Even in Genesis, they were naked but not ashamed. And then the next scene, we see, oh, they're naked and they're ashamed. Uh, The resolution to that problem is pictured in Revelation with the white robes of righteousness that anyone that does not have, anyone not clothed in the white robes of righteousness, anyone not clothed in Christ is still subject to shame, meaning they're subject to shame and death. Just one more little preliminary thing, and that is, is shame a problem of the soul? How would you answer and the way that I've just described it, it's an easy answer, right? Because what is the soul? The human subject. It's the, the person. person. It's the yeah, person. So, so the, there's four key terms. Cardia is heart. Nous is mind. Pneuma is spirit. Suke, or I like to just mispronounce it and go ahead and say psyche because it's, that's what the meaning is, is soul. And then there's soma, body. Uh, the different ways. And the issue here is not with the other terms. The key issue, though, is between pneuma, spirit, and suke. That is, what is the relationship? Uh, have we done this? The key passage in Corinthians, you know, when Paul is talking about the psychicos man. Is the psychicos man the one that is subject to death and shame? Or is the psychicos man, in fact, the soulish man, uh, the one that's saved? Is the pneumatic man, sub, you're getting the difference? For Paul, the soulish person is the one who is not the pneumaticos person. That is, the one, he, he's describing the soul in terms of embodiment, the problem uh, that some who are soulish, and when they die, uh, they won't put on the pneumaticos man unless they be found in Christ. Uh, so the soul is, don't think Platonic stuff here. Think Greek, well think Hebrew, and then through the Hebrew you get at the, uh, the Greek understanding in the New Testament. Um, so the soul has to do with uh, uh, the psyche, the whole human being, seen from the point of view I'm reading from N.T. right here. One's inner life, that mixture of feeling, understanding, imagination, thought, 
and emotion, which are in fact bound up with the life of the body and mind. So shame is clearly a problem of the soul. And I'm using this language just to say that when we're dealing with this thing, this experience, this emotion, I just want to say we're dealing with the reality of who we are. Sometimes we think that our, you know, these things like shame or uh, honor or pride or love, oh, these are secondary things about who we are. But what I want to say is, no, actually shame has to do, it's a primary thing about us because it's the very problem, it describes the problem as we experience it of human fallenness, of sin. Now, uh, and, and here I may have already said something more you know, that David might object. You say, wait a minute, is shame automatically connected to sin? I I think that certainly in uh, in our fallenness it is, but I think even in an infant you can begin to see that as human beings being embodied, we're subject to things like shame. But I would say it's only a fully developed human being that, that we're talking about here has the full experience of shame. So the resolution to the problem, in other words, if we stated the problem serious enough, then we can understand that the resolution of the problem is nothing short of the whole issue of salvation and resurrection. Uh, but the, the reference previously is 1 Corinthians 15:41 to 42. The two sorts of body is the psychicone and pneumaticone, which is the saved person. The soulish person, the soulish body, or the spiritual body. And by spiritual, Paul doesn't mean not fleshly, because he's talking about resurrection. Well, it's the spiritual body, right? It's the body that's, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit uh, in that instance. So to be clothed in Christ is the resolution to the problem of shame. Uh, If we have that in mind, we recognize that being subject to shame or and that's, I mean, we're talking about final state of things right here in Revelation, in Psalms, in the wisdom literature. You have two choices. David praised the Lord. I pray that I would not, you know, experience the final uh, decay or subject subjection to shame that is the, in the grave. But the last thing I'll do here, I'll go through some uh, several scriptures. But what you see in the, in the Psalms uh, and in the wisdom literature is that shame is tied to death. Death is the end point of shame. So that in saying that shame is what it feels like to die, that's certainly biblical. But what I would say is that that's what has been discovered also in psychoanalysis. This is uh, Freud and Lacan don't say a lot about this, but I think this is really what is being described in their understanding of the disil. In other words, is the I, is the ego, a reality in Paul? Or is it a fiction? It's a deception. It, it, it's, a, it's a fiction, it's a deception. That Paul's saying that the I, the ego, the, is the word that he's using there. And that, interestingly, is parallel to what happens in Freud and Lacan. Lacan, especially, 
that what they're picturing is the ego is not a reality about you know who you are as the as a fact of a human being, but the ego is a construct. If it's a construct, it's subject to dissolution. It can be undone. The reality, of course, is that we've solved our problem of identity through a fiction. And the way that we've done that is through pride, through covering up. So shame and uh, pride are on an axis in Scripture. That pride comes before shame. That's actually what the proverb is saying. That pride comes before a fall. That Well, yeah, because pride is itself a construct, like Paul is describing regarding the I, that is subject to dissolution, is subject to being undone. So that we are already dead, you know, outside of Christ in our sins, but the full-blown experience of that, I think, is that as we, you know, are, are, uh, as we experience the failure of our identity, or the failing of pride. So I don't. We don't need to do much with with shame versus guilt. But let's say it real quickly. What's the difference? Guilt is I did something bad. Shame's kind of I am something bad. Yeah, that guilt. You know, uh, you can you can pay for it. If you're speeding, you're guilty. You pay the fine. And unfortunately, that's what the atonement has been reduced to, is payment for guilt. There's no reason to say that in terms of Scripture, because uh, what I think rea- the reality is that Christ bore our sin and shame. He didn't. It's not the. Uh, it's not simply a guilt problem, and guilt then is not in any way more primary than shame. If you go to Bible dictionaries, that's what they'll do. They'll say, well, you got guilt, and therefore you got shame. I don't think that's the way it's lined up. You may be guilty of a transgression, but the experience of guilt-shame, you can't distinguish it in that fashion. Now, this, you know, all this relates, of course, when Paul says, I'm not, Paul's not ashamed at the beginning of Romans. Uh, he's tying into a, a language uh, a series of terms um, that consistently appear together in the Old Testament in the Lament Psalms with righteousness. What's the cure? You know, Paul's not ashamed. Why is that there at the beginning of Romans? It's not, oh, I'm not embarrassed, as we might hear some pop preacher say at some major convention. Uh, but it is. Uh, I am, that with that he's saying the righteousness of God is revealed. And so he's playing off the language of the Old Testament there, that righteousness is the resolution to shame. Um, So uh, shame, you know, in Genesis they uh, are induced to hide their, uh, in fact, thrown out of the garden, thrown out of God's presence. Uh, They're in Cain's case, you know, God, uh, he says, don't let me be cast out of your presence. I can't endure this. Uh, Ruth, uh, or rather Helen Lewis, 
uh, well, Ruth Benedict also, uh, they refer to it as the unendurable emotion. So that in psychology and in scripture, you got you have a parallel. They're all saying the same thing. I can't endure this thing. And I think quite literally, we cannot endure prolonged shame. It it you know does it kill you or is it in fact the experience of being? I'm not sure which it is. But the point is, you you if somebody continually shames you, uh, there is going to be a reaction of some kind. And typically, it's the reaction, not just of Adam and Eve, you know, that's one reaction, let's run, man. Or it's, I'm going to get you. I'm going to hit you over the head with a rock. Uh, I know in Japan, uh, there was it was a fairly common occurrence that people that had lived overseas, they come back uh, to Japan. The boy is about 15 years old, and his uncle kept making fun of him, of his, Eng- of his Japanese, rather because he had an English kind of American accent. And eventually, if you do that long enough, you'll get a reaction, right? And he did. The boy picked up a baseball back and whapped him in the head and killed him. Uh, but if you look at the newspaper any day, you know it won't say, boy shamed kills uncle, but you can usually pick it out. The nature of, of murders and crimes... I, you can. It, it's pretty predictable that somebody got shamed. I mean, what, what I'm getting at here, this is a powerful thing. This is the most powerful emotion or, or experience that you can have. So that death and shame are not just tied together in the individual, but those then who are shamed by others will be, then be that the, violence is often the result. You know, somebody shames you, uh, you want to get them. Uh, you want to kill them, you know, is is the natural. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm saying that's the instinctive thing. So what, what I'm getting at here is that we can describe this as primal. It's a root experience. It's a root negative experience. Uh I would not, you know, in the Baker's Bible Dictionary, it says shame arises from guilt. Well, depending on what they mean by that, uh, no, the point is, though, that, that uh, you've fallen, you've lost the presence of God, is the way that James McClendon, I think, puts it in that, in the, tell me how does he define shame? Ties in nakedness and a lack of God's presence together. In shame. Okay. Talks about it's um, not being what you think you should be. It's feeling of worthlessness. That's kind of like the um, the lady that we saw presented icon. I forget her name now, but the, on the on the honor and shame thing, she said it's when like the what's it like the expectations set for you by by your community argument by reality or something like that and so I, I think that I liked her presentation by the way but what I, and and but I just you know I think that and she said it at one point that I think what we're describing ultimately is not simply a cultural experience 
it's that, and I think she was saying that that in that different cultures manipulate this thing, or you know, uh, in some way resist it in different ways. But it's you know, Adam and Eve is the, the experience of their shame is universal. Here's the the quote I got from McClendon: In genuine presence, uh, I am with another, and she or he with me, and there is a wholeness in shared act or fact of our being there. But shame is a failed wholeness. Thus, face to face with one another, but ashamed, we sense a loss of presence. Uh, this resonates in several directions. I don't know if you're familiar with Jacques Derrida, but, and, and Derrida is probably not thinking of shame, but his whole philosophy is about the idea of the pursuit of presence. I think this is significant because that's what we imagine we can get in and through language, you know, and it's precisely what's not there for us. You know, the cogito, I think, therefore I am. Or can you be present to yourself in and through that formula? I don't think so. In fact, I think the formula aggravates the problem. And I think the way that we use language in our fallenness, that it's not that language is the problem, but to pursue presence, the presence of God and the presence of other people through a thing, an object, uh, is, is necessarily a frustrating and failed experiment, experience, right? How, so the question is, how, where do you find presence? I think that's what Descartes is in pursuit of, is his own self-presence. Uh, I want to be present to myself. You know, I want to find myself. I want to get a grip on myself. Uh, this is the whole, the pride, shame. In Japan, there's, uh, the language here is quite obvious, and Christian will be able to tell us all about this. Uh, there's two key words. There's tatamai, which is my face, the way I present myself, my outward self. And there's hone, which is my inward self. Those two things don't meet up. In fact, the, ta- the purpose of tatamai is to hide the hone. And you do not reveal the secret self. I mean, you, you know, if you do, it uh, is on the order of itself giving up the secret kernel of who you are. Uh, think in, uh, in, in Japan, there's a novelist, do you know who Yukio Mishima was? Mishima's the guy who standing on the self-defense force. You can see the video if you want. See him kill, Well, you don't get to see him kill himself. Not that you would want to, but it's the last recorded case of seppuku. Right? He does this big speech, which nobody can hear because the news helicopters are flying over. You know, he's got the, the headband on with the rising sun. And then he goes in, he, they've tied up a general in the uh, self-defense force offices, and he has his, he's created his own little army there. It's all a spectacle, by the way. And he's told us why he's doing this. In other words, you have this, this image, the imagery is all this masculine Im- imagery of a, of a warrior dying for his uh, emperor. But in, the, in his novels and in his autobiography, he tells us the truth. 
One of the key novels is called Confessions of a Mask. And what he's describing is the typical thing. Oh, here is this outward presentation of self. But now I'm going to tell you about the inward reality. And what's happening in this guy's head, you would want to commit seppuku too. You would line up because the guy's miserable. He's, he's, I mean, it's just, it's torturous just to read this stuff. And that's the genius of Yukio Mishima, is you can barely bear to read him. I don't know if that's, that's a peculiar kind of genius, because it's so sick. I mean, it's not, you know, you may think here in terms of, there's a lot of sexuality, but it's never straightforward. It's always, it's always violent. It's always homoerotic, and it's never really, it's, it's always connected or usually connected with death. And so what he does next, don't think of the masculine, you know, that's the tatamai, that's the pride. But what I'm saying is, where does this thing take you? You know, why do people kill themselves? What's the motive you know, behind, and suicide, by the way, in Japan is just sort of, you know, it's a wide and open highway uh, that people are traveling down. So Mishima is a kind of unique uh, in that he's recorded it precisely why he's doing this. But he goes in, he does the tip, you know, seppuku, you drive the sword in, the short sword, you go left and right. If you're really a tough guy, you can reach in and pull your guts out and set them on a platter and then you bow and when you bow your second has a sword and he chops your head off this would have all been great samurai you know uh, spectacle except his second is really not a samurai you know he's a he's a young guy that doesn't know much about sword and he whacks him in the neck and can't get it yeah you don't need all that but anyway uh so it, it's uh, the, the idea here of the interplay between ego and superego or between Paul's I, the law of the mind and the, the law of the flesh. I think that what you have acted out in Yukio Mishima is the punishing nature of this thing that is a self-destructive death-dealing picture of shame uh, it is the when so when I say the root negative emotion uh, I think that this is the the uh, it this will take us to a dark place and maybe we need to dwell there a little bit the way that uh, Leon Vermser if any of you want to pursue this in research Vermser is a secular psychoanalyst or psychologist who's done more with shame than most he says, to see and to be seen have to be blocked out. So remember the whole picture, you know, you're seeing people looking at you, uh, that you in some way have to stop that. It's too dangerous. Drained of its lifeblood, so to speak, made into a strange quasi-reality. Uh, and the name of his book, interestingly, is The Mask of Shame. Sounds very similar to confessions of a mask that shame is the thing that prods us into creating a facade the facade of identity the facade of pride the facade of you know and uh, but 
understand that those facades don't really help what's happening in your head. You're still sick. Uh, Mishima, I, I don't mean to dwell on Mishima, he's just kind of fascinating because he creates a whole, his, his, the end of his life is well plotted out. He's, his whole, much of his life is given over to planning a suicide. But that's, people don't get that's what he's doing. Uh, but he tells you that in Sun and Shield, or you know, this uh, is autobiographical work. Um, so it's not simply God's presence, but it's human presence, and maybe there's no difference. You know, when we lose the presence of God, we lose access to our self-presence because the way that we define the image of God is that shared presence. So. You know, the, you can then go through the pictures of, you know, like the Tower of Babel or even prior to Babel, the Lamech. You know, there's two kinds of people. There's those who are subject to shame, but that's not necessarily the worst condition, is it? What would be worse? Just those that don't care. Somebody who's shameless. And that's the way, you know, that's the picture in, uh, the, from Lamech and the generation of Noah. If you ever meet somebody that's shameless, you want to you start running because you're dealing with a complete sociopath. And that's what I believe the people of Noah's generation, they're complete psychosociopaths. They're the Lamechs. They're the people that will kill you if you look at them wrong. Because of the, remember, the, the strong, compelling, you know, are you shaming me? You know that there. You know the culture, the kind of the kind of you looking at me. Uh, you don't want to mess with me. I'm Lamech. You know I killed me a young man. I don't actually. I reread the poem the other day. It there may be two murders in there. Um, but he's bragging. He's doing murder poetry. Yeah, if you, you know, if Cain would be of in seven times, Lamech will be of in 70 times seven. He's the original mafioso. But so is everybody. They're all rappers, you know. They're all going around doing their uh, gangster rap. Uh, kind of a flat society, you know. Uh, so... Uh, the the language here. I don't know how interested you are in pursuing this, but there there's a, an entire body of literature. I think that is being that I think applies to this, even though they may not be using the word shame. And that is in postmodern, you know, the stuff that Jacques Derrida is doing. He it's all about presence and absence. Remember, he it's Derrida that does the examination of Freud's day of babysitting. I think that that is actually ultimately, if we're, if we're talking about presence and absence, we're talking about shame and pride. It's the language game that we would carry out. Uh, Lacan, Freud, but, so, but even in psychology there's a, uh, uh, there, there is a kind of uh, renewal of shame studies. I probably told you about Stephen Pattison, who is the one and this is a good book if you're... Pattison is uh, written on shame. And he's done a compl an exhaustive survey of the theological literature on shame. 
And what he notes is, first of all, in there, it, the, there is writing on shame, but generally the way it starts is, I know you people have this problem, or there are some people that have this problem. In other words, his point is, this thing is so powerful, even theologians writing on it don't want to claim it. They don't want to expose the fact that they themselves are subject to shame. He, I think he picks, he finds two out of the whole, uh, and he does an exhaustive survey of theological liter- literature on shame. He, by the way, begins his book by talking about his own, so you know, being subject to shame, in in a very personal sort of way. And part of his point is that what happens in the typical. He doesn't get into theology, he just gets into church and the way that we do church. It is actually a kind of aggravation of the problem. In other words, uh, the way that uh, the whole, you know, it may be that people, uh, uh, because we, you know, it, it is a difficult topic to address. And, but because the price of not addressing it is to aggravate the problem. Uh, I got this one just just uh, shortly off of uh, uh, the uh, website. This is Gershon Kaufman. Shame is the most disturbing experience individuals ever have about themselves. No other emotion feels more deeply disturbing because in the moment of shame, the self feels wounded from within. Uh, the feeling and thoughts that were We are somehow wrong, defective, inadequate, not good enough. Um, So it's bad, but my point is, yeah, but it may not be the worst estate. The worst estate would be to be shameless. The thing that is happening in Scripture is when people are doing shameful things, the prophet or the representative of God comes on the scene to shame them into repentance what we would do you know in the pictures in the prophets are you you're doing stuff under covers literally literally you know the bed you know you're you're doing and of course what he's talking about is not sexual sin it's adultery or, or idolatry and so the prophet comes in and says i'm going to lift up the covers i'm going to lift up the skirts i'm going to see what you're doing you know it's sort of like if you're in your room looking at pornography and you suddenly feel a presence behind you and you turn around. I don't know who's an authority figure that you would care. Uh, maybe your dad or... Uh, uh, You're already, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, so you're intensely looking. And it's all about looking, right? It's the visual. Uh, but then you are looked at. And that's the shame. So I, I think the, the uh, visual metaphor is not just a metaphor, but in fact it describes the sensibility here of, being, of seeing and being seen. Uh, here's a few scriptures on it. Uh, linking shame and death throughout. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. They will be put to shame who are treacherous and without excuse. And what does it mean to be put to shame? You're obliterated. The work of shame 
is allowed to complete its course. You're undone completely. Uh, that was Psalms 25.3. Psalms 25.20. Uh, that if you're going to escape shame, you have to seek refuge in God. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. The presence of God is the cure of the absence of shame. Um, Proverbs 11.2 Pride cometh, then cometh shame. Pride comes before a fall. I think we could put several you know, axes here that uh, uh, it's pride, shame, presence, absence, clothed, naked. Um, that uh, uh, Psalms 53.5 describes the progress of death as being overwhelmed with dread. And so shame and fear, shame and dread are very closely interconnected. Where there was nothing to dread, to a final shattering of the bones, uh, for God put them to shame. And then Psalm 78.66 talks about everlasting shame. Uh, I don't know what that is, but that can't be good. Uh, whatever it is. Um, uh, the, I already mentioned the, the idolatrous, the, the, and idolatry pictured as prostitution, uh, and then the judgment or exposure. It, and the exposure, of course, is to be naked. We're going we're gonna to rip off, and you're going to, and being naked is equated with being ashamed. If you had to pick the motif in the Old Testament that describes the worst condition you could be in, it would probably be the shame, you know, think of Abraham here, but what would be worse than being Abraham? It would be being Abraham and not even being able to have a child or not, you know, it would be a, a widow who... And that's precisely Isaiah 54, that Israel is pictured as a widow who is childless, and she, it's the shame, pictured as the shame of a, of a kind of living death. And then the resolution to that is that you will not suffer shame, Isaiah 54, 4. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. God will be your husband. God will you know, uh, be your present, uh, present for you. Uh, let me, uh, I, I could go, uh, there's lots of passages here. Uh, we mentioned the Revelation passages connected with clothing, Psalms 83, you know, David prays that shame would come on his en enemies. But maybe Saul or Isaiah 50 is key because it's a picture of the passion and what Christ has done for us is bore our shame I offered my back to those who beat me my cheek to those who pulled out my beard I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me I will not be disgraced therefore have I set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame so there's the, there's the undoing of shame. We've connected shame and death, but Christ goes into the 
heart of the grave. He, he's put to death in the most shameful way possible, and he reverses it. He's not put to shame. He undoes the power of shame. Um, maybe we're about out of time, uh, so let me, let me pause, or do you have any questions here at this point? Jake? Uh, how then would confession and within the body of Christ that would be something to undo shame to expose mm -hmm. and then close again yeah I think you're getting it because what we would tend to do is hide and if we hide what we're doing shame. then we're going to be subject to shame but if we confess to our brother what we've done, we've already exposed it. That the, in a sense, the, that is already the the part of the cure. But that's yeah, that's a good point. Our our, our typical thing is not to deal with shame, and confessing sin is I you know I think that uh, we may think that's too shameful. Wait a minute, we're not subject to shame. And by not confessing sin, I think we do make ourselves subject to shame. That uh, in some way, you know, the, again, it becomes like the honne. It becomes like that secret thing that you cannot reveal uh, to anyone. Uh, in one novel, I've forgotten the Japanese novelist's name, but he has his disciple, you know, he's a, a college professor, and he t says to the student, I'm going to reveal to you my honne. I'm going to spew the blood of my heart on your face. The idea, I'm going to undo myself by confessing to you my sin. And he does. He kills himself right after that. So he confesses. It's too much. He kills himself. Well, well, that's the picture, is that you need... And in the end, you know, what was it that he confessed? Well, he had, in fact, stolen his wife from his best friend. And, you know, really, it, you know... It, uh, but that was the terrible thing that he lived with all of his life. So think again here, when Paul begins Romans, I am not ashamed. I know that I will not be put to shame as in Isaiah 50, he who vindicates me is near. The righteousness of God has been revealed. Um, so Paul is, I believe, referencing the imaging, imagery of the suffering servant. Uh, the passage goes on in, in Isaiah, they will wear out like a garment, the moths will eat them up. And the suffering servant, though, who's entered into the jaws of shame and death, uh, he will not be put to shame, but his persecutors will be consumed by a final shame. So shame is clearly more a serious problem than guilt. It's an all-consuming fatal disease, if you will. But uh, it's precisely, I think, what's addressed in the cross of Christ. You were going to ask something, Evan. I, thought. I was thinking is so when you say that um, uh, maybe the the person that's that's trying to kind of not deal with shame and, and kind of you know put it away but 
but in essence then they're living in shame. Is that kind of, um, does that almost tie together with like death denial and, and death acceptance when we, when we start to go in and confess and just say, you know, I, this, this is what, what happened. I, mean, I got to expose this thing. You know? Absolutely. And so what you've hit upon uh, is the impetus behind death denial. I mean, why would you do that? Well, because you don't, in a sense, you don't have any choice. Because this thing is so powerful. I mean, it'll eat you up. You can't live with it. You can't endure it. So, yeah, pride covering shame is the construct of death denial. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you get that... The, all, you know, is this a conscious thing? I don't know how, how, what level of, I don't really think it's necessarily a conscious thing. What you're describing is almost a necessary thing. I'm sorry, Jake, you were going to say something. Yeah, just thinking like Romans 1 and I think 2, but just all like, like the drunkenness and the orgies, all be just outward displays or things. That would be them being shameless. You think that's not necessarily. In other words, uh, that I don't. I, I'm, I, I, it may be that. I just don't. I don't know where. In other words, I think when you pronounce someone shameless, in a sense, what you're saying they're they're irredeemable. And so I, I would be hesitant to say that someone is shameless. I think there are shameless acts, but... There's, so there have been some, uh, I guess, some, some guys that I've, I've talked to that uh, maybe, maybe they've been caught up, caught up in this, this sin so long that they start to, I guess, they, they say, I don't, I don't really feel ashamed of it anymore. Um, would that be more... Um, is that something different than being, being, like just utterly shameless, or is it is it just like you're, they're desensitized and they, they I, or I don't know how. To do it. I think you're describing the process and the danger that if you're no longer ashamed, and that, I mean I think that's what Paul's describing. They openly do these things, that, so that they're they're certainly on the way, and we know people that yeah I've done this so long. I don't care. You know, we've had students that have come and hidden their sexual proclivities, and then the next thing we know, they're on the internet. You know, lewd pictures of them. Uh, and so, there, there. I think that that is the journey that that you're on in sin is that if you're going to live with this thing, uh, you're going to either cover it up and hide it and deny it. Or you're going to become completely shameless. But of course to become completely shameless, shameless means you can no longer live in human society. Because you, you're, you're, uh, you're, you know, you're a dangerous individual. You're dangerous to yourself and to other people. Uh, occasionally I've met people that I, and, and you really should be afraid of somebody that's shameless that is, enjoys, <laughs> I, I, I laugh evil, <laughs> uh, you know, 
the, 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 um, that is the underside of this. So shame is it's a terrible thing and it, and, and it, it will kill you. But as long as you have it, you know that there, there's the possibility that you're being prompted to repentance, to, the, the, to come into the presence of a fellowship. And I think that's the idea here of the agape fellowship, a real agape fellowship that you can come into and you can, not that you need to tell all of us, but you can come in with your brokenness and we accept you no, there's no no strings attached here you don't have to pretend with us you know we well, I understand you know we we can be and so I think that's the level if you're not willing to engage at that level unfortunately in other words if you're not willing to deal with the shame issue I don't think you get to the agape love part if we're all going to play a game, I'm okay, you're okay. There's no room for love in that game. It's an easy game to play, and that's the game, that's maybe the only game in town sometimes. So when you find a group of people, or you know, that you find real fellowship, real love, uh, that is precisely, I think, the resolution to the lost presence. Here is a group of people in which I can be fully present. They're completely present with me. You don't have to hide a thing from me. And, you know, I don't have to hide from you. Uh, that's the only place in which we're going to experience the full presence of God. That's precisely where the Holy Spirit shows up. And so our problem is lost presence. That we would put off and hide and through death denial through pride and the resolution is no let's own up to this thing let's own up to our brokenness our sinfulness and on that basis we can all come as beggars to the one who can give us food God's presence his glory Yeah, that that uh, the glory of God, you know, the, that's the unfortunate thing. That in Sinai, they feared it, but in Christ, no, that's the cure. Being in the presence of God is the cure. Anybody want to add anything from McClendon? Did I leave anything in part out of McClendon? He talks about blame a little bit, mm-hmm. about how the, you know, kids do it for a while, maybe the mature out of it. But I mean, just when I was reading it, I was just thinking of scapegoating. Uh, yeah, and it's there. I think it's there a little bit in Gerard. I had to, this, this is the this is the French psycho, you know, philosopher Sartre has. Uh, he does a lot with shame. Uh, interest. Sartre is not. I don't think that interesting a thinker, but in this, he's very interesting uh, because he's he's recognized this experience. I think. Yeah, I think that it, it, once you get it, that this is a thing that maybe shame, you know, is not a strong enough word, the English word. We, it, what we need is whatever that is that motivates us to do the, to do our worst.